Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I am pastor on staff down here in Payson, Utah at Orchard Hills Bible Church. Again, I said down here. I, I did that at recently in a recording where I assume you are north of me. Sorry to those of you who aren't north of me. <laughs> but anyway, today we come to Acts chapter 15, the section this week in the Come Follow Me curriculum produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is to cover Acts 10 through 15. But I will just be looking at chapter 15 and give you some thoughts from a Bible church pastor and help you to see things a little bit from my perspective if you're into that sort of thing. Next week is Acts 16 to 21, and the week after that, Acts 22 to 28. Then on to Romans. Still haven't decided what we're going to do for the book of Romans, because it only gives us two weeks to discuss that book that would take a few years to preach. Anyway, Acts chapter 15 is where we'll be, and uh, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. there, There are just so many cool things that happen in Acts 15 for a church nerd like me, someone who likes looking at old minutes from church meetings, so... When I say church nerd, that's what I mean. That's pretty gross, I know. Uh, what a sick-minded individual I am, that I would enjoy reading the minutes from old meetings. But that's just kind of how I am. I am in vocational ministry, full-time Christian ministry, and so I, I find interactions in churches to be very interesting, especially when I'm not not directly involved and I can be an outside observer. <clears throat> And this is what we get to do in Acts chapter 15, is observe the early church wrestling through some pretty interesting issues. Now, let me set this up this way. I might step on your toes a little bit if you're LDS, so watch out a little bit. Mind your feet. But uh, there is this teaching within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that that organization is the one true church, meaning that the church that Jesus began, had apostatized early on, and had totally lost its way until the restoration of the church happened through the prophet Joseph Smith. Now, I, of course, reject Joseph Smith as a prophet and reject the notion that the church apostatized and there was no church on the face of the earth until it was restored through Joseph Smith. I reject all of that, but that's the teaching, right? And that now Jesus has established his one true church on the earth with prophets and apostles and uh, a specific organization, and that there's like safety in this idea that it's not splintered with denominations and stuff, but it's just held together as the one true, not only church, but the one true denomination. Now, it's false to go on thinking that there aren't denominations within what could be broadly called Mormonism. There are some 70-plus denominations within Mormonism. Not all of them are uh, prominent at all. I mean, the vast majority of those are very insignificant that may just have a couple of families involved. I don't know. Wikipedia could tell you more. But there are some pretty prominent ones, like the RLDS, the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, based out of Independence, Missouri, kind of from my neck of the woods, uh, where I'm from. And it's pretty big. I mean, they got a temple, and they have a pretty big influence there in Missouri and the surrounding area. And there are offshoots of that 
organization, uh, small branches that exist uh, closer to my hometown, out in the country in central Missouri, that are offshoots of the RLDS. So that that's just kind of interesting. That's just what happens with organizations over time is they divide a little bit and you get denominations. Yet there are many, it seems, in Utah that have this idea that there is only one true denomination. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's held together. It is uh, just this unified, solid thing that's going to exist until Jesus returns. But that's just not true. You get groups that break off, and there are some even in Utah that have broken off this one. Uh, The FLDS would be an interesting example. But when a group branches off, you can just... You could just say, well, they they are not the true church. We're still the true church, even though they branched off. Okay, you could say that if you want, but they're affirming Joseph Smith as a prophet. They're affirming the Book of Mormon. They're affirming all sorts of things that um, mainstream Latter-day Saints also believe. And so at some point, you got to say that, okay, this church isn't as unified as we thought it was. All right. So there's one thing I want to say to set this up. Now, let me give you a perspective Uh, that I have about the Christian church and all of our denominations within just Protestantism. So this is outside of the Roman Catholic Church, outside of Eastern Orthodoxy, outside of Anglicanism. You have the Protestant church that has many denominations. You could be Presbyterian or you could be Baptist. You could be Pentecostal or very not Pentecostal. You know, you could be all sorts of things within Protestantism, because there are lots and lots, not only of denominations, but even ways of going about formulating doctrinal statements and doing ministry. Well, that is not an inherent weakness, as some would paint it as. Some people would say, well, that shows that they're not the one true church, that Protestantism isn't right, because look at all these different options you have. How do you know which one is true? Well, the reality is, that God has seen fit to build his church with different expressions that generate this diversity, yet there's a fundamental unity that sweeps across uh, all of these denominations. You could start with what's most paramount, which is the gospel. All these denominations still have the same gospel message, the same outlook that says, look, Um, if someone dies in his sins, he is going to be judged by God unless he is covered by the blood of the Lamb and he has placed his faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus. That's that really basic message that, that crosses multiple denominations, that spans all kinds of diversity within Protestant Protestantism. Now, if someone rejects that gospel message, now that person's not Protestant, right? So Protestant means something, and it means someone who affirms the gospel. But also, there are other things that get affirmed, like the Trinity and the Bible as the sole source of authority, that the Bible was inspired, and that the Bible is inerrant, okay? These are very important doctrines that exist across multiple... I said across. That's wrong. Across multiple denominations, that that's just uh, a baseline, fundamental, foundational reality for what 
a Protestant Christian church believes. The reality of heaven and hell, the church is the bride of Christ, not the local church, but the universal church is the bride of Christ, that there's morality that should be upheld, that the Bible instructs us in morality, um, that there's an importance placed on baptism, communion, prayer, uh, though there's di- there are different expressions of that, that but the uh, the doctrine itself is held as important. So Protestantism actually has this foundation that we we agree upon. Yet you get all kinds of opportunity for disagreement in matters of secondary issues. A lot of it has to do with your methods, how you go about baptizing people, how you go about. Uh, practicing communion or establishing church leadership and all that stuff. It, it, you don't have disagreements on the importance of these, but how they're conducted you have disagreements on. And Christians, for the most part, do a pretty good job accepting that that's just a reality, that we have primary doctrine we agree upon, yet we have secondary issues that we disagree on. Well, this was not—oh, my word, we're almost 10 minutes into this. I'm sorry, we haven't gotten to the Bible yet. I will not make a habit out of this, I promise. Well, this was not some new phenomenon that it happened in the 20th century or something, that there would be a bunch of Protestant denominations. In fact, in the Bible itself, in the early stages of Jesus building his church in the first century, we have denominations, you could say, existing. Now, these aren't formal denominations as we know them today, like Presbyterian Church of America and Southern Baptists and yada, yada, yada. But we do have some differences that existed in the realm of secondary issues as the church is trying to work these things out and trying to preserve unity across different convictions in matters of secondary issues. Wow, that's a lot to say before I even talk about the context, the specific context of Acts 15. So I hope that makes sense. If not, go back and listen to the last nine or ten minutes and hear that again, but that I wanted to say that first. All right. So now let's talk about the context of Acts 15. The Apostle Paul has been saved and sent out as a missionary. He's been going about with Barnabas through Asia Minor. He's been in Galatia, seeing people turn to the Lord, specifically Gentiles, believe in the gospel, and churches are getting established for the very first time, and elders are being installed in these local churches, and so they're becoming these independent entities that now exist with the gospel as their foundation, seeking to reach other people in the area with the gospel and to build up the believers in the church. Paul and Barnabas are coming back to Jerusalem, and they're delivering this report to other people who are attending this meeting. And the other people attending this meeting, well, it's pretty amazing. There's Peter, the apostle Peter is there. You have James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's there. And you've got some prominent believers in Jerusalem who were Jews, and now they are Christians. Well, these men who were Jews, who have become Christians, are going to struggle a bit with this idea that now Gentiles are welcomed into the house of God through the gospel as is. Now, they, I think, it seems, they like the idea of them coming into the house of God, but coming into the house of God as Gentiles? Don't they have to become Jewish first? That becomes the question here. So let's just start reading. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. 
Some men came down from Judea, this is into Jerusalem, and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. All right. <laughs> so there it is, right? That's, there's the problem. Don't you have to become Jewish first? And for them, becoming Jewish first doesn't mean putting a little yarmulke on your head. It doesn't mean you know, flying the Star of David flag on your front porch. They're talking about you need to become circumcised. You need to outwardly, physically show the sign of being in this Abrahamic covenant by getting circumcised. Don't you have to do that before you can be saved? Hmm. Well, let's hear the response now. Verse 2. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them... All right, well, let's pause there now. So they are responding, Paul and Barnabas, with, No, you do not have to do that to be saved. Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be saved. And this is critical because you have these men teaching this. And some of the men who are teaching this are Christians, we're going to find out. They're Christians who have their view of how Christianity should be carried out and what that should look like in this new thing. Remember, the church is a new thing. Jesus had come presenting the kingdom to Israel. They rejected him. He then went to the highways and hedges and and Gentiles are now coming into the house of God with some Jews, and they're trying to figure this out. All right, so Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. Verse 2, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, oh, is it, yeah, sorry, they weren't in uh, Jerusalem yet. I believe this was Antioch. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, remember this is like a who's who meeting here, all the prominent guys in the early church, and they reported that God had what God had done with him. Sorry, they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So you have Pharisees who had believed in the gospel now saying it's necessary for Gentiles to get circumcised and to become like us outwardly before they can be saved. Circumcision was a big deal in Israel, rightfully so. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, that was an aspect of that to show you're a child of Abraham. You had to be circumcised in the flesh. Paul taught you show you're a child of Abraham by being circumcised in your heart, by having a heart of faith. You're identifying with Abraham, the believer, who believed God, and it was accounted to, accounted to him as righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis fifteen six. And the Jews would say, yeah, that's true, but they also need to have their physical foreskin cut off to be physically circumcised. That's what needs to happen. So there's still dissension and debate. It was happening up north. Now it's happening in Jerusalem. Well, verse six, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. All right, let's get to the bottom of it. What are we going to do? After there had been much debate. All right, now let's stop. Apostles and elders are getting together to talk about this and say, what should happen? And they're debating. It's not like they got together and they said, oh, the answer's obvious. They got together and they were debating. All right. Okay, keep reading. 
Verse 7. Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Peter says, this law of Moses stuff, you can't put that on the Gentiles. <laughs> we couldn't do it. Our fathers couldn't do it. And, and the law of Moses wasn't given to them as a means of salvation. God never said that was the role of the law. But it was their way of life, right? As the covenant people of God, the way of life was to obey the law. And Peter says, we couldn't do it. We found that it only led to death for us. So why would we give put that yoke on the Gentiles when we can't do it? and we have all this heritage, how are they going to do it? That's Peter's perspective. All right, well, let's keep reading. Verse 12, all the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So there's a break in the debate here, and Paul and Barnabas are saying, well, let's just talk about what God's done. And they describe the signs and wonders that took place. You can actually go back to chapter 14, the chapter before this, where they're among the Gentiles in Galatia, and signs and wonders are being performed, and those, those Gentiles start worshiping them like they are Zeus and other you know Greek gods. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what's going on. This is the special anointing from the Holy Spirit to show you that we are messengers of Jesus Christ. They, this would get your attention and confirm our message to you. All right, That's what was going on. And so they're describing this to the brothers in Jerusalem, describing this to the Jews who have believed. And so that had to be pretty awe-inspiring for those listening. But we still haven't settled this debate, right? So let's keep reading. Now another prominent guy is going to stand up, James, half-brother of Jesus. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. He's here quoting Amos chapter 9, which talks about the second coming of Christ, actually, not the first coming. After these things, I will return. This is how James is using this passage as a second coming verse about the return of Christ. And when that happens, these amazing things will happen in Israel, that the tabernacle of David will be rebuilt, that the ruins will be rebuilt, and it will be restored. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, is that uh, Israel is going to be established, Jerusalem is going to be an amazing place, a rebuilt place. But also at that time, the rest of mankind is going to be seeking the Lord, and there's going to be a a group of Gentiles who are called by his name. So 
James is talking about the second coming and saying, look, when Jesus comes back, he's going to have Gentiles that are called by his name. So the prophets didn't have a problem with including Gentiles into the plan of God. That's what James is saying here. He's just putting down as a baseline here. Look, even the prophets, when they're talking about the end, see Gentiles in the group of God's people. We see Gentiles included. All right. So let's get past this whole they need to become Jews first thing, that God's people are only going to be Jews, that they're all going to be circumcised. James says, no, that's not it. We can't go down that road because we know when Jesus returns, he's going to have both Jews and Gentiles called by his name together. All right? So that's James's big point. From there, now he's going to make application. Verse 19 Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, that's interesting. James says, Here's my judgment now. Four points of application, or four aspects of the application. We're going to tell the Gentiles to not be circumcised here, not to keep the Sabbath, not to, you know, uh, refrain from wearing clothes with mixed fabrics. We're not going to tell them to abstain from shellfish. We're going to tell them to abstain from, number one, things contaminated by idols. So, like a sacrifice made to a false god, don't eat the meat afterwards. Now, we learn in the Bible there's freedom for Christians to do that. But he's saying these Gentiles that they had in view at this time, we're going to ask them not to do this. We're also going to ask them to abstain from fornication. Now, that one's pretty clear. The, the church is instructed many, many times as a baseline reality for all of our existence to not practice sexual immorality. But apparently the Gentiles needed to be instructed that specifically to not practice fornication. And there are other takes that people take on that, but they felt the need to highlight that one in this, okay? To abstain from things contaminated by idols, to abstain from fornication. Thirdly, to abstain from what is strangled. That has to do with a law in the Old Testament about animals that were strangled. And from blood, eating something with its blood in the law again. You're not supposed to do that. And apparently these were touch points in their interactions with their communities, the Jewish communities, where people were uh, saying, well, look, these Gentiles are, are doing these things and it really bothers us. And so James says, yeah, we can ask them to abstain from those things. But circumcision really bothered the Jews too, the fact that these Gentiles were uncircumcised and James didn't go there. And he didn't go toward those other laws I listed, like Sabbath observance and shellfish, and mixed fabrics, and putting a parapet on your roof, and all that stuff. He gives them those four elements. Well, verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. And it goes on in this letter to say um, 
hey, here are four things you can do that should help your relationship with the Jews. We're asking you to abstain from these things. And it says in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Bang, four things. Doesn't say uh, that one of the essentials is keeping the Passover or any other feast in Israel. It doesn't say the essentials are, uh, you know, all kinds of things that you can read about in the law. But these four specific things, pay attention to them, and uh, if you keep yourself free from such things, it says, you will do well. Farewell. (laughs) So they sent that letter out to the Gentiles as their instruction for how they were to live. Now, going back to this idea of denominations, now you basically have Gentiles and Jews trying to figure out how to live with each other, but the church down in Jerusalem that was very Jewish-heavy they were probably still practicing circumcision. We know a few chapters later, Acts 21, that they were still going to the temple as Christians and even making a sacrifice and going through purification rites as Christians. Yet up in Antioch or in Galatia, where it's very Gentile-heavy, they weren't doing any of that. They were just trying to hang on to those four things that James and the others wrote to them. So you have very different expressions of Christianity very early on, even though they believed in the same gospel. Even though they are brothers in Christ, you have very different methodologies. And that's important to recognize. Even as early as the first century, you have denominationalism existing. Now, I say denominationalism. That's shorthand for diversity. (laughs) Okay, I am not a huge fan of Christian denominations. This church is a non-denominational church where I pastor. I'm a big fan of Christians fellowshipping together across their differences to associate with one another, to group together with some common beliefs. But denominations where there's a controlling aspect, a dictating aspect about how things are run and operated and all that, I'm not a, not a fan of at all. So when I say denominationalism here, I'm talking about just diversity. There was diversity in the early church amid their unity. Because Christian unity is not uniformity. Christian unity has diversity expressed within it. Just like there is but one God. He is absolutely unified, yet he is diverse because he is Father, Son, and Spirit. From all eternity, God is both unified and diverse. One God, three distinct persons. Pretty amazing stuff. But if I didn't convince you already that there was diversity in the early church and that there was some quote-unquote denominationalism, let me show you another example from this very chapter. Paul's second missionary journey. He was setting out with Barnabas. Let's read this, 36 to 41. Acts 15, 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, 
And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. (laughs) So now you don't have Jew versus Gentile type debate. You have Paul and Barnabas, who this whole time were saying, Gentiles don't need to become Jews. They were on the same team in this debate. Now they're splitting apart. Now they're going separate ways because they can't agree on the qualifications for ministry. John Mark, who was a missionary companion on a previous trip, he was looked at differently by Paul and Barnabas. Paul looked at him and said, look, he, sh- he disqualified himself. He showed that he, he just doesn't have what it takes to be a missionary. He bailed on us, and Paul took that personally. You know that going through something like that with somebody where you feel abandoned by the person, that kind of colors the character of that person for a while, and you're not ready to trust that person again for a while. Barnabas, on the other hand, apparently was sympathetic toward John Mark and understood why John Mark would do such a thing and said, no, I want him to come with us. Well, Paul and Barnabas now have this sharp disagreement, Scripture says. They can't come to a conclusion, and so they go two separate ways. That does not mean one was planting churches of the one true church and the other was planting churches of the devil. No, actually it means God was using both of their efforts, even though they disagreed, he was using both of their efforts to build his church. There was just now a diversity within the church, at least in this one case, of ministry qualification. And Barnabas was ready to take him back, Paul wasn't. God uses such diversity as he builds his church, and that diversity continues even to today. And so, thinking of 2,000 years of Jesus building his church, 2,000 years of church history, you can imagine how different disagreements pop up naturally over the course of time and kind of stack up, they accumulate, and you have so many different expressions of biblical Christianity, though we share the same foundational gospel message and we share the same basics, fundamentals of the Christian faith. That diversity is actually a strength as God uses different people to reach different people. And if you have a uniform group, which is actually quite ugly, you're calling people to come in and conform themselves to man's opinion. You're calling people to come in and conform themselves to tradition. Because God has not revealed every doctrine down to a T, and men are left to figure things out on their own sometimes about where their conviction is, And they'll land in different spots, creating this diversity that God then in turn uses to reach more people to build his church. That is so different. If you come from an LDS background, that is so different. It's just an extremely different way of looking at how God reaches the world and builds his church. But that's the Christian way, that's the biblical way, and I think I've Proven that from Acts 15 today, all right? Well, uh, I've given you a lot. It's been over 30 minutes now. I've given you a lot. So I want to uh, just leave you with that and let you think about that. I'm sure you have some questions. Would love to entertain those if you want to send them my way. I believe when this publishes, I'll still be on my sabbatical this summer. Um, Maybe just getting back. But if you send a message, we'll get to it eventually. Would love to hear from you. And um, thank you for listening. Thanks for considering the thoughts of a measly guy like me. 
And uh, may the Lord bless your efforts as you seek to understand his gospel and what he's doing in the world, uh, as you seek to follow him by faith. The Lord bless you.